Today we'll find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, which can be found on page 1160 of the Pew Bible. Hear now the reading of God's inerrant and holy word. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the, the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let us pray. Father God, here we are gathered together, seeking to be fed from your word. Please pour out your spirit upon this place this morning, so that we might partake in the riches and glory of Christ. ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the first two chapters of Ephesians, we've seen the unfolding of the cosmic drama of God. We've seen how God has his sovereign hand over everything, and how it's it's his power that saves us, that begins to grow us in righteousness, that in in one sense uh, gives us power to ultimately be victorious over sin in this life, and more richly the life to come. And how through Jesus, things far beyond us and beyond our understanding were set in motion, even before time itself, in order to work out his glorious purposes. And that reality of kind of seeing the big picture view of of how God has planned to save us and to grow us in righteousness can lead to a question. Okay, if God has such control over all the events that have unfolded in the world, what does that mean for me? How does it connect to the daily goings-on and daily decisions of my life? Let me explain what I'm trying to say this way. This weekend, of course, there was a funeral that captured the attention of the world. And it was on news stations and, and the media alike and, uh, and uh, over Prince Philip's passing. And there were all sorts of discussions um, spilled ink and alike about this funeral. You know, how would this affect the Queen of England? How would, would uh, Prince Harry and Prince William talk? You know, um, was it right for Meghan to, to stay in North America? And, and, and people kind of get caught up in this drama, right? We, we, we look at this royal family and, and we already, even if we don't want to know, we already know way too much about them. And and people just get, get kind of captivated and carried away with these kinds of stories. And yet, not to diminish the fact that Prince Philip, obviously, his passing will grieve a great many people. 
and affect people. There are people grieving at this very hour over his passing who have legitimate reason to, in one sense, grieve and, and to be sorrowful to have lost him. But for us, kind of the, the spectator looking at the spectacle of it all, it really has no connection to us. It really, none of us are going to, you know, when, when the day comes for, for my funeral to take place, whoever speaks in the, in the homily or the eulogy of the funeral is not going to say, you know the day Kevin really changed? The day that, that Kevin, she apparently was very upset about that. Um, the, the Prince Philip illustration, note to self, don't use that illustration again. Um, nobody's going to say, you know the day that really changed Kevin, it was the day that Prince Philip died. Because I'm not connected to that story. And so here, as we have approached now these verses, uh, we the first two chapters of Ephesians, and, and last week we looked at it a little bit, but really as we begin chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul's first going to use himself and say, and now I get to be connected to this cosmic story. I get to be connected to the work of Christ. And then he's also later on, not today but so much, but actually a little bit in our verses, going to say you get to be connected to it too. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is something that we, the believer, get to participate in and connect with, and it changes us. And that is good news. It's not just this royal reality beyond us, but it's one that is imminent. It's connected to us. So that is basically where we start here at, in Ephesians. God has written every one of us into his play. We have a part to play in his story. And so let us begin looking at verse 7 in our passage today. And our passage begins with Paul, as I said, using himself as an illustration. Now when it comes to verse 7, there is a historical truth here that most everyone misses when they first read these verses by Paul. And it actually will tell us quite a bit. And what it is is this. Paul was technically in ministry before ever having an encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And and Paul wasn't just some casual guy in ministry with half-hearted motivations, mailing it in. Paul, dare I say, had a commitment to live out the faith that he subscribed to without apology or trepidation. Paul is a rare individual who was in ministry before actually becoming a true minister of God. Paul's story actually is not so unlike the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. John Wesley, on January 25th, 1736, so four years before the building of the Gemeine House, right, Bruce? Or after, after, four years after the building of the Gemeine House. That's in the back that Bruce is going to talk about. That's a plug in the sermon, yes, after church. Four years after that Gemeine House got built, John Wesley found himself on a ship heading as a missionary to the New World. And he was on a a mixed ship. It had kind of half Britons, British uh, people from England, and uh, half Moravian Germans as the ship is bound. And as John Wesley is on this ship, coming to America in the frigid January waters of the Atlantic as an ordained minister, outwardly he appears to have it all going on. He's the young, faithful minister. And yet John would later admit that while he had gone to be and gone through the steps of a minister, 
He knew nothing about God's grace. There's a sense in which, regardless of what you do in this life, or have done in this life, nothing really begins to fully make this world right or make sense until we richly understand God's grace. And so even though John Wesley was this brave missionary outwardly, he was not yet connected to the story of Jesus. And so back on this boat with John Wesley, a storm began to overtake the boat. And it was so dramatic that this, the mainsail's mast broke and the boat ship itself began to flood from above. And in that moment of what seemed to be pending doom, most of the British contingent on the ship found themselves screaming and cast into deep fear, Wesley admitting that he was among them. While the German Moravians just kept calmly singing on. What a joy the gospel can be. That even in the face of death, or as Paul finds himself in Ephesians as he writes this letter, in imprisonment, there can still be reasons to sing. To which John Wesley eventually asked one of the Moravians, Are you not afraid? And not missing a beat, the German Moravian replied, I thank God that, no, I'm not. To which John Wesley followed up with, your wives, your children, aren't they afraid? To which the Moravian calmly replied, no, of course they're not afraid to die. I converted. That led John Wesley down the road where he realized there's something wrong with his faith and to a deeper search and ultimately to have an encounter with the gospel of God. How powerful the simple ministry of watching someone not afraid of death How powerful that can be to John Wesley or to others. Even though John Wesley was not, wasn't an ordained minister, the gospel of grace had not yet changed him. And so it was through that moment that he began to look for what he was missing that the Moravians saw. And like John Wesley, Paul's own life story in verse 7 has some of these same similarities. While Paul technically, yes, was a religious minister before knowing Jesus, He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, after all. As he says elsewhere in his letters, um, the ministry really wasn't connected to Paul. He really wasn't a minister until he was connected to the gospel itself. And by example, the Apostle Paul is in part telling us, no, you don't understand. Your life really doesn't begin until you enjoy it being connected to the larger story of Jesus Christ. Our roles as spouses or as grandparents or as children as parents or employers or employees, as citizens or as members of a church. In one sense, yes, people can have these roles, but not until those roles are connected to the gospel um, are we really attached to the larger story of God. The real things of value, the real things that are lasting in this world, are always connected to our God and His plans. So are you having trouble at home? How has knowing the gospel and the grace of God helped you in your troubles? Or has it not? If not, then do you know the gospel of God? Because it changes everything. Maybe you need a reminder of it this morning. Having trouble at work. How has knowing the gospel of God helped it? Or has it not? If it has not, then may I ask... You know the gospel of God because 
it changes everything. What are the things that you're struggling with? Do you know the things that you're struggling with? How has the gospel of God changed you in the midst of those struggles? For Paul, being put in ancient prison, it it didn't change his perspective because he knew it was all connected to the work of Christ. And so likewise, because the gospel is true, it can tell us things about our own story. The gospel is not only the difference between singing a song when imminent death is being faced by Moravians or imprisonment by Paul, but there is a deeper reality at work here in a way that we can say that life truly begins in whatever we do when we receive that new life through the cross of Jesus. Then as we read on in verse 8, we learn that grace gives humility to us as well. I love Paul in this verse. Paul throughout his letters displays this personal progression of humility. Uh, Paul in the book of Corinthians, which is often seen as his first book uh, that he wrote, in the book of Corinthians, he calls himself the least of the apostles. That's 13 people. Here in Ephesians, and about the halfway point in his ministry, a little bit farther than the halfway point, he calls himself the least of the saints. So that's out of Christians. By the end of Paul's life, as he's writing to Timothy, possibly even as late as the final week of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. And yet, again, my story is connected to Christ. And so I have something greater in that despair. The gospel brings humility. Not necessarily all at once, but it continues to grow within us. And notice how the gospel also, according to this verse, is unsearchable for the unbeliever. That means the unbeliever cannot find it on their own. So those who know it must share it. May I ask you a question? When was the last time you shared the gospel? Answer in your heads. With somebody who did not believe. Have you maybe recently had someone over for dinner? Or taken an opportunity to well out or even helped in certain ministries so you could help someone learn about the gospel. You parents actually have this easier because you often will have children who do not yet believe. So you have like living, breathing ministries right in your home. But for us, we have to ask ourselves, is that kind of idea even in your thinking week in and week out? Paul here sees doing such things as the highest of honors. Sharing the gospel as the highest of honors, as the greatest of gifts, gifts because we get to be a part of the great cosmic story of redemption. Does that get you fired up? Or does that make you roll your eyes? I remember one time in a ministry out in Las Vegas when I was at the PCA there, um, there was an individual, he had kind of attended church off and on from time to time, and he wanted to meet up with me for lunch. And it was just one of those moments in ministry, I was exhausted. I, I really am an introvert. I know it's hard to believe, but my wife can confess this for me. Uh, But it was just one of those moments where I did not have the energy. I did not want to go meet this guy for coffee and lunch. Um, And so we sat down. And at 1 o'clock, and about 15 minutes in, I realized he doesn't know the gospel. And at 10 p.m., they closed the coffee shop. So that was nine hours in. And And he was just letting me. We're going back and forth in Scripture. And so we decided it was in a shopping center and there was an outdoor little seating area. So we went there. And my wife calls me at about, she knew where I was and what I was doing. I was giving her updates at times like where he went to the bathroom or something or to go get a refill on coffee. But at 11.30, she's like, okay, I think it's time now. So 11.45, we finally called it to an end. 
and, I, and I really don't know what the fruit of that interaction would be. And I'm not asking you to have 10 hour, over 10 hours at a coffee shop with somebody to share the gospel, or 11, nearly 11 hours on the gospel. But you get excited about seeing opportunities for evangelism, of sharing your faith. Because the Apostle Paul did. And the Apostle Paul could also see those opportunities even in prison. But you would think in prison you'd see like you can't do it at all. But he, he saw the opportunity for the gospel to go forth. You can see how Paul is overwhelmed by the reality of God and, and he just loves to share it with others. He sees value in it. Then in verse 9, Paul adds to this idea saying that sharing this message is like bringing light to people. Do you know the, the, the Greek word here is actually from the root word photizo. What does photizo sound like? Photo, yes. That's where we get the word photograph. Paul in one sense says sharing the gospel is like showing a photograph. Think of it like showing the photograph of Jesus to someone. That's what sharing the gospel is like. You know, we used to in the 80s and 90s, and I'm sure in the 70s, but I can't remember. I would live in the 70s. But the 80s, 90s, it was the dreaded time of the house visit when somebody brought out their photo album, right? They brought out their photo album, and you're like, oh, i got to pretend I love all these photos. And, you know, some, some of you are more sanctified than I am. You actually love that experience. And now, that's kind of changed in our culture. People bring out their phones, right? And we had, there's hardly a family gathering where somebody doesn't bring out the phone and scroll through photos. That's a little bit like how we should look at sharing the gospel. It's an opportunity to bring out the photo album. It's an opportunity to show the light of Christ, the photizo of Christ, to share it with other people. That's a joy. That's a gift. We get to, as Paul will remind us, and we talked about last week, we get to take away the mystery for people. We get to let them see the true God of the universe. We get to be mystery solvers. Once we get over the fear of humankind that we have in showing the photo to others. It's what John Wesley saw on the ship. He saw people who had a different photo than he had. That's what changed him. This photizo, the light of Christ, had been hidden for ages. God had allowed, as Paul says, a time to pass. Over, the gospel just passed over generations. And God is allowed to do that in His own power and will. And yet now Paul announces in verse 9, but now we get to share the photo, all of us throughout the world. We get to share the light of Christ. God in Christ Jesus has opened up the doors to heaven and wants to include us in this story and asks us to share the photo. Invite whoever we want inside. And we should see that as an honor. Not, a, not some duty. Not something that, that makes us grimace. Are you, do you, have you appreciated that gift of sharing the picture of Christ with people? And thus far, as we get to verse 10, we see that a lot of our looking at this has been individually centered. And yet, then we come to verse 10, and it's a tricky sentence in the Greek to translate in the English. But at the start of verse 10, we see the heart of evangelism is not the individual Christian. But it's actually the collective body of the faithful. The collective of those who actually understand the Bible. And actually understand the gospel. And the one in whom it announces. 
It's the gospel-believing church that helps show the full light of Christ and the wisdom of God to individuals worldwide. And that is why when at least we personally have people join the church here officially, they come up to take membership vows. And it's not only them taking vows, and it's not only the pastor taking vows, but we even have the broader community, all of us taking vows. Pastor Kent Hughes, he actually put this discussion um, this way. He used to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He said, the bottom line is, the church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. I am not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but also you don't have to go home to be married. However, if you do not frequent your home, your relationship will be in jeopardy. Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. That the church was to stand as a unified collective for the gospel together in order to be a light into our communities. This is why I'm excited to see that soon here, probably this week, we're going to introduce the reset, kind of the ministries here at the church. And people can discover what ministries they might fit in well. Because the church as a collective is a saving entity, so long as it understands that true gospel and is not ashamed to share it. And as verse 10 continues, we see rulers understand the power of God through the church. And for the record, that first half there of rulers, that's really speaking of the earthly realm. Paul is saying the gospel-believing church is something that rulers have to reckon with. Don't believe me? A single faithful Reformed church in Alberta, Canada is known today by rulers of nations not just in Canada, but throughout the globe. And it's giving them headaches. And it's frustrating those rulers. Why? Because even though the church did take several measures to protect itself, it did go to two services to spread out its community and stuff, uh, and stream online, etc. They wouldn't entirely listen to the provincial authorities that made one rule for churches and another rule for businesses. And so they've surrounded that church with fences. And the church in its hardship and yet boldness has made known the wisdom of God to people throughout the world today who are on the ship and wondering, why do they want to keep singing? Why do they want to keep singing? Why are they not scared in the same way? I just want to scream right now. Why do they want to go gather together? Haven't they watched the news? The church has a role that helps set in motion something better for the world. And all these debates about churches in the last year, too many of us Christians were unprepared to understand or have failed to appreciate the general principle Paul is speaking about here in Ephesians. Without the congregation gathering, how can we really share the good news of the gospel of Jesus? If revealing the goodness of God requires a dynamic community of faithful, how can that take place without the church gathering? You know, I really think week in and week out, my favorite moment in church is at the end of service, probably because I'm an introvert and I just like to be done. But no, no, I'm kidding. Um, But I like it when I hear the community talking to one another and, and staying around afterwards to talk with one another, fellowship, encouraging one another, different personalities that would never have interacted without the person of Christ. And think of our broader culture in that moment. 
What have we lost in the last year? In almost every store you enter or business, people have been putting on masks for over a year. And when people look on them, they all, and, and those same people wearing the mask often look at others. Many have only seen the possibility of disease. A smileless blob, who if you're not careful, might infect you and might kill you. It's our generation's version of leprosy. And you know what? Jesus, and I want to be clear, Jesus did not overly con- overtly condemn people for being afraid of the leper. Even some of his of the biblical law has the principle of if people are sick, they need to stay home in order to not affect the congregation. However, so you're allowed to be uneasy about COVID or you're allowed to be uneasy about leprosy. However, Jesus didn't let leprosy stop his ministering to people directly and loving upon them intimately. And he didn't have it stopped the congregation that followed him of disciples. And we need to remember that. It's when we're engaged dynamically with other clusters of believers, the gospel best comes alive. Also in the gathering of the church, we have this second thing mentioned at the end of verse 10. We are a part of the cosmic drama the angels watch over. And, and that's incredible. You can read more about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. I often think about this during worship, really right before the call to worship, especially when I've included a call to worship in the bulletin. But there is a sense in which when we say the call to worship, we are centered in the heavenly places. And there is a sense in which Paul is alluding to here, and Peter does in his letters, that the angels peek in and they watch us and they marvel. Remember, the fallen angels receive no savior. Lucifer and 33% of the angels fell, and in their fall, they are doomed to everlasting judgment. And yet we, who were once lower than the angels, are now, through Christ, made superior to them. Why? Because have God planned out this cosmic drama. And the angels in heaven there are still awestruck. When they see God's plan of redemption unfold. You're saving them, God? You're saving them? That's amazing. Well, you're going to save that one too? That's remarkable, Lord. And it may seem childish at first to say, but this, this really takes place. Heaven is revealed, like heaven is, gets to see more of the unfolding through the church. Because we normally picture angels to be those little Hummel kind of figures, those ornaments. But right now, God's doing amazing work on this little speck of dust upheld in space called earth. And the rulers are taking notice. And the angels in heaven, the heavenly hosts, are taking notice. And, and our moment in the history right now is that we have the boldness and the courage to share the photo. To share the gift of Christ. None of this was a cosmic afterthought. We have a role to play in this cosmic drama. We are a part of God's story according to His eternal plan. This was His plan all along and it's amazing and it's incredible. And it drove the Apostle Paul into a self-emptying humility that could, even, could see God in, in all ordering all that he did in life. And it's what we as a church are called to do in our own time. So that all authorities on heaven and earth might come to richly see the good wisdom of God. And so that is why Paul's final words of this passage for us this morning call us to have boldness, to have confidence, to never lose heart. 
No matter if we are suffering or in fear of death, or we think we've committed sins so bad that God can't forgive us, if we know who is behind us, fighting for us, and how much he loves us, not just outwardly, but that, as John Wesley once had, but now inwardly, being transformed by grace in the gospel, then we have nothing to fear. I continue to see so many people lose heart in our day and age, surrender themselves to screaming and despair about the current state of things. But Paul's message to us this morning is, yes, at times it might be unbelievable and hard to understand, and you might long for simpler days, but God has set in motion some wonderful things he promises in his word to accomplish great and mighty things. So God will use our lives to help guide and strengthen and build both us and the church. So let us then have courage. Not because we can handle the present storms on our own, in our own strength, but because we know the one in whom had the courage to defeat our greatest enemies upon the cross. That great storm of Calvary in which our sins were poured upon him, let us remember that moment so that now we have something to sing about. Now we have a photo to share in the midst of so many who are fearful at this very hour. Amen? Let us pray. Good Father, we thank you for the fact that you are most generous with us. That you have given us Christ to look upon. And Christ to give us courage. A gospel to free us. A gospel to give us boldness. Help the joy of the gospel motivate our steps, our actions, and our life so that we might live in greater righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.